there was a moment when I said I would rather be fired from a job being myself than to keep a job being the person that the executives want me to be. If they've hired me, the assumption is they've hired me to be who I am. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, Ronald Young Jr. Ronald, so good to see you. What what have you got for us today? Isaac, I am so excited. We have Carla Hall, formerly a contestant of Top Chef. She was the host of the daytime network talk show, The Chew, but now is currently hosting a new show, Chasing Flavor on Max. Oh my God, you got the Carla Hall, and I'm spelling the with two E's. I love her. Are are, are you a Top Chef fan? Should we just talk about Top Chef for the next half hour? You know, like who's your favorite? Listen, I have been waiting impatiently for the new season of Top Chef. It's one of my favorite shows. And yes, this is now a Top Chef stand podcast. Yeah, totally. You know, people ask me why I love the show. And I actually say it's like one of the the smartest shows out there about the creative process. I yes. really believe that because, yes. you know, they've got their constraints. They've got to be creative within those constraints. You know, it's it's uh, God, I love that show. Uh But let's talk about our show, which hopefully our listeners love, particularly our Slate Plus listeners. Do they have anything extra coming this week? Oh, man, do we have something indeed, Isaac. I asked Carla if she had to make a meal with her life at stake, what would she make? And I loved her answer. We also dig a little deeper into her life as a model in Paris, which was a really cool and interesting time for her. Well, I can't wait to find out if that meal is peas made for Jacques Pepin. Uh, And if you are a Slate Plus member, that little tidbit will be waiting for you at the end of this week's episode. If you are not a Slate Plus listener, I mean, what are you waiting for? Slate Plus is so delicious. You get full access behind the paywall. You get bonus segments on shows like ours. You get bonus full episodes of shows like Decoder Ring and Big Mood, Little Mood. Sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. Now let's listen in on Ronald's conversation with Carla Hall. I'm Carla Hall. I'm a chef, TV personality, and the host of my new show, Chasing Flavor on Max. So my introduction to you was as a contestant on Top Chef, but I feel like these days it's really hard to classify you as just a chef, like because you've grown so much, you've had multiple careers. How would you describe yourself now today? Gosh, um, the first thing that popped in my head was a Renaissance woman. I don't want to be in a box. I'm an enthusiast of many things. I'm a food enthusiast. I love history. I love people. I love crafts. I love all kinds of things. Um, so where does that put me? I mean, you can't put me, there is no box. So one of the interesting parts when I was doing research, uh, was I saw that at one point, like it would, we look at the timeline of your career, you really are a Renaissance woman. You were a certified public accountant. You were in modeling, you were a chef. Now you're media personality. And I, I read somewhere that you hated your job as a CPA. What did you hate about that job? Well, let me count the ways. <laughs> I mean, no diss to any CPAs out there. It just wasn't for me. And I chose it for the wrong reason. Um, the, the pressure of it, I felt this stress and pressure all the time to produce and to do well. And I was afraid of failure. 
And interestingly enough, when I quit and I said to people, I am quitting because I don't want to be 40 and hate my job. And and this is leading me in that direction. But my father was the only one who said, you're quitting because you are afraid of failure. And I just like, oh my gosh, he sees me and you know, the shame of that. But I mean, I made the right decision. Do you think, was there anything about it? You know, accounting isn't necessarily a creative job. Was there anything about it that kind of felt like you felt stifled or caged uh, as a result of being in this type of job that's almost like more logical, administrative? Well, interestingly enough, I mean, I guess you can get creative. I love my accountant. I mean, she and I know she loves what she does and she loves working for people and figuring out ways to, um, well, if you get too creative, you're going to jail. But um, she, I mean, you're like, <laughs> okay, let's, let's get that out there. Don't yeah. get too creative in accounting. But it satisfied the part of my brain that likes order that, you know, so I love a spreadsheet. I still love a spreadsheet. I love puzzles. So I love when things work out and there's a resolve, right? So that, I mean, that's accounting. What I didn't love was being at a desk and that being the, the output of my work. So at the time, just the computer systems were very different. We had the floppy disks. So you could, if you changed on one disk and you didn't put it on another computer to get, I mean, it was just, it, that time was just so, I don't know if I'm, undiagnosed with my brain with ADHD, but something like that could just send me. Yeah. Like not having things match up and you have to pay attention to putting something over here and you have to put it over there. And it, it no, that it just didn't. It, yeah. <laughs> oh. So you eventually transition out of accounting into uh, modeling and, and chefing. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me about that transition? You leave accounting and then you move on. What does that even look like? So, I mean, it sounds kind of crazy to most people, but so I did the fashion shows at Howard University. Mm -hmm. So I did the spring fashion show, like the homecoming fashion show. And so when I went to Tampa, Florida, and I didn't know anybody, while I was working at Pricewaterhouse, somebody had said, oh, do you model? And I was like, oh, well, I've modeled in college. And by saying yes to this person, it was a way of meeting people because I, I didn't have any friends there. I didn't know anybody. So that was a way of meeting people. So I started doing that, had my pictures taken like for my portfolio. I started doing fashion shows in um, stores and things like that and for designers. And then when I realized I really hated this job... I met these girls who were saying they were going to Paris. And I was like, wait, you're going where? And they were modeling. And I said, that's a great idea. I tendered my resignation. And two weeks later, I was done with that job. And, And so the modeling was the thing that that was a bridge. It was a bridge between what I knew I didn't want to do and what I eventually wanted to do. And what I realized about myself, I don't wait for someone to give me permission to move. I will take the initiative to move to that thing. I keep moving until I find a place that feels right, like my spirit feels right. And and so that's why I ended up going to Paris. If they were going to Italy, I, I would have chosen Italy. But they chose Paris, and I had to learn a little bit of French. And then I fell into food. So the universe literally puts me in places where there's discovery. 
it does feel like there's a synergy from the way that you're talking about, especially moving and being in the right place. Would you say that that like helped with your philosophy of cooking? Like I know the one that we hear the most from you is cooking with love. Mm-hmm. So is that, would you say that those two philosophies, how did, would you say that they uh, match together cooking with love and also moving until you're in the right place? I was just talking to someone about this. One of the things that I realize I do, I make connections. I try to, like if I see something, whatever that thing is, like if I go and I, don't know, I go to a restaurant and I'll see a particular dish, that experience becomes the butterfly effect that's happening in my head with food or it, it's happening in my head with things or an experience. And then I do the deep dive into that thing. And then I'm like, hey, where do I show up in this space? So in food, when I'm creating dishes, when I'm competing, when I was on Top Chef and they're like, hey, you got to go to a bodega, you have to cook something. And then I see Fritos. Instead of seeing Fritos, what I see is corn. And what pairs with corn? Tomatoes, cumin, chili powder. That's how my brain works. And when I'm on a cooking show and somebody is giving me a dish and I'm trying to make the audience or help them realize or see what I'm eating, and I try to make a connection to what memory it is. So I will say, oh, wow, this this texture, this texture reminds me of boiled custard or, you know, it reminds me of cream of wheat or it reminds me of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So it's something that is familiar. And all of a sudden you're where I am. You are in the moment of where I am. And that's how I create. It's just making connections. I love that. I I also feel like that's a lot of like what came through in Top Chef. I remember there's always one thing that stands out to me. Uh, there's a scene in that show where I remember you just walked in the room. I think you were the top three, top four at that point. And you walked through and you had your luggage with you and you started like pumping your hand in the air like that as you walked in. <laughs> uh, like there was several things that kind of congealed that for me. You were like really pegged as a big personality uh, in the show and not in a way that ever felt like, you know, you were like trying to get camera time or any of that. It was very much who you were. So you're cooking, you're finding success, but also you're being yourself. You're being Carla Hall. When did you note that, you know, the success that you're having in the trajectory was opening doors that were beyond cooking for you? Well, first of all, when my friends saw me on Top Chef, they were like, Lord, she's being herself on TV. I don't know how that's going to work out for her. (laughs) They were like... People would say, people say to my friends, you know her, is she really like that? They're like, yeah, she's really like that. Yeah. But, you know, I think, and and when I went on to do The Chew, and keeping in mind that when I did Top Chef, I was 44 years old. So it happened at a time when once you hit 40, you you are all about being yourself. Mm-hmm. So you are, I mean, there's a freedom to being yourself and it just, ha- it continues to happen, you know, every milestone birthday. So that that's that, there's time and place. The other thing is I realized that when I did the chew, my prayer every day was authenticity. And I was like, please don't let this job change me because if they've hired me, then my, the assumption is they've hired me to be who I am, not who they want me to be. Now, where that gets a little tripped up is when you don't really know the job. So when you're learning a job and you're trying to be yourself, the intersection of that sometimes is very difficult because you're like, well, I don't know where I am in this thing because I don't know it. 
I don't know how to be myself because I'm learning it. You know what I mean? So it's like when you're learning to drive, you don't really know what kind of driver you are. You, you, you don't know if you're a cautious driver. Of course, you're a cautious driver initially because everything is new. But, you know, do you drive fast? Do you drive slow? Are you going with the, you know, at the speed limit? So the first three years of the chew was really hard. But my prayer every day was authenticity and it was there that I learned that by being myself, I'm going to get ahead. I'm going to be, I re, I, there was a moment when I said, I would rather be fired from a job being myself than to keep a job being the person that the executives want me to be. Mm. So I made that intention and that decision. And once I realized that being myself, you know, in this, it took me three years to, to feel comfortable in the job to become myself. And then um, on the other side of it, I'm like, um, it's on. And then I also felt like I had more to contribute. We'll be back with more of Ronald's conversation with Carla Hall after this. Hey listeners, Isaac Butler here. Just wanted to say real quick, we really want to hear from you. Do you have a problem you need help with? A guest you'd like to suggest? A creative triumph you want to share? Well, let us know. Write us at workingatslate.com or call us at 304-933-WORK and leave a message. That's 304-933-WORK. And make sure to tune into Working Overtime, where we answer listener questions every other Thursday. All right, that's enough out of me. Now let's get back to Ronald's conversation with Carla Hall. I want to tell you a quick story. So I was an RA Mm -hmm. at VCU uh, down in Richmond, Virginia. And I remember one time we were doing RA training. And uh, I also kind of a a big personality. I'm just like kind of loud in in a room and all that. And just like laughing and having a good time. And I remember one time we were playing this game. We were playing kickball or something. And we were having a good time, you know, just doing stuff, hanging out. And I remember one of the directors came over to me and said, hey, Ronald, why don't you let somebody else have some attention? And I remember it it sat on my chest and it like it bothered me. I got so self-conscious. And it wasn't until years later that I looked back and be like, that had nothing to do with me, that had everything to do with them. So from one big personality to another, I could see that it's you. I know when it's fake and I know when it's not. I could see that it's you. So I'm wondering, did you ever have any moments during this journey where somebody tried to like put the lid on you? Just be like, hey, why don't you, you know, why don't you chill out doing all that? Like, and and how did you navigate that? I mean, hearing your story, I'm like, you know how many times I've been told that? Like, you're too loud. You're too big. You're just too much. And you do. You try to make yourself smaller and you become self-conscious and you're like, am I sucking the air out of the room? And, and, you know, and it stifles you. And as soon as a person feels that way, it means they're not in the right place and they're not with the right people. I, I have been told that. I've been told like, oh, are you not on your meds today? And I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. You know, I mean, just all the things. And finally, I said, um, if I cannot be myself, it is not the place for me. Mm. Because my right and perfect place will accept all of me. And that's a way of diminishing somebody. And it's it's a little microaggressions 
And also sometimes people are not comfortable in their own body. So when they see you being very free, it reminds them that they're not where they want to be. So they want to shut you down. So yes, it has happened. <laughs> in a word. In this is going to be, and this might feel like a little hard to describe, but you know, you get to a place where you feel comfortable with who you are. You're getting more gigs where you're on television in front of people, but you're, and you're like kind of honing the craft of you. Were there any, like uh, anything that you had to learn in terms of like honing your television personality beyond just being yourself? Was there anything where you're like, well, now I do this. This is something I learned while doing television. And is there anything that felt helpful to you to know when becoming a television personality? I mean, there are a lot of things. So, um, and I did see a media trainer, the second season of The Chew. And by seeing a media trainer, they're helping you become the best version of yourself. Mm -hmm. I became a better storyteller, beginning, middle, and end of a story. Before a child, I would start three quarters from the end. I come a quarter <laughs> from the beginning. I go to the middle. Then I go to the beginning. Then I might, if I remembered, wrap it up and give you the end. But uh, I, it, it, was, it was crazy. I became a better listener um, because I was with five other people. So, you know, it becomes a give and take. It's almost like being at a black church, call and response. But you have to be quiet when you are uh, responding because you have to listen. So it does. It helps you become a better listener. I became a bigger version of myself because the thing that people don't realize when you are on television and you want to be really cool, you come across very flat. Mm. And so you have to modulate like what is the right amount of energy that is a, a, a base level. Like, because base level for a play is very different from base level like when you're on, let's say, a soap opera. Mm -hmm. And when you're on like a talk show, so the you have to find like what that base level is. When I am live and I am hosting a show, I become much bigger because it is live and I have to take space up on a whole stage versus on a set. So all of those things I had to learn. I had to learn how to do an interview. I had to learn how, um, and I thought when I first started, it was flattering to fangirl during an interview. It is not. And let me tell you why. <laughs> I learned and I was told and I got my knuckles cracked about it. Because when you're fangirling, you make it about you, mm. not the person you're interviewing. Mm. And so you have they're there for a reason. They're there to sell, to discuss, to present. And by you taking up the energy about you and how much you like them, they don't get to talk about why they're there. Let me. And that's. It's funny you say that because I'm wondering how do you actually manage that in the moment? Because I can. I can imagine like being in a job where I get to do interviews. Every now and then I run into someone and I'm like, oh my god, it is Dwayne the Rock Johnson. <laughs> so how do you manage that in the moment? You have the fan moment before the the interview. Ah. You have to have it. You have to release it. It's okay to have it. Yeah. But don't have it on television during the interview. Yes. You know, do okay. it off stage. Do it before. I mean, I learned that because the first time that I met um, Jamie Oliver, it was on set. And I was like, oh, my God, I love you so much. My husband knows that I love you. And, I, and I'm literally leaning over him. I am <laughs> leaning over him. He's leaning back. And he's looking like he is scared. But I didn't care because this was my moment. <laughs> I had dreamt about this moment meeting him from when I was in London. And, and so they said, the executive said, okay, you have to meet people beforehand. Not 
on air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and that was really wise and good advice. Nice. When you're when you're thinking about like authenticity specifically, and you're thinking about um, especially talking about the idea of not letting something change you, how are you managing this idea of authenticity while also because now you've you've added layers here authenticity while also managing the size in which that you have to perform in some cases personality with being Carla Hall like day to day even in an interview you know what I mean I know that the energy is mm-hmm. different in an interview that you're receiving versus one that you're giving. So how are you managing all those parts of your personality and still holding true to who you are? So back to the change part, I expect to change. Mm -hmm. I love it when people go back into somebody's history and they're like, you said this when you were 12. (laughs) I mean, they are 66 years old right now. If they haven't changed since they were 12, something is really wrong. This person, you know, something's wrong. Agreed. They should have changed. So when I am in an interview, I really try to be present. So for me, if I am present, I'm always going to be myself, whatever that is in the moment. And if you see me at home, I mean, I'm borderline introvert, extrovert. I show you my extroverted side, but many people don't realize that I have the introverted, nerdy side. Um, You know, that's very much a part of who I am. And it doesn't mean that I'm changing or it just, you know, situations when one will come out over the other. But... um, but in terms of interviews, even if I'm on the other side and I'm asking the questions, it's about listening and, and not sticking to the questions that I thought I was going to have, like they're a script and they're written in stone. Because the other person will say something that really takes us in a different direction, and I want to go in that direction. I, wanna, I want the interview to sort of ebb and flow where it needs to go, not my preordained direction. Because that's not as interesting. Now that more of your work is in personality and television and hosting, I'm imagining that you are spending less time in the kitchen. Is that true? Well, I do a lot of so my social media. Mm-hmm. Twice a month, I get into the kitchen and I am um, piddling and um, nerding out on a particular recipe or an idea. Uh, and then I do these guest dinners, so and that's an opportunity to cook. And I'm going to tell you, it, it's probably the layperson or my fans who call me, quote-unquote, Chef Carla. I, I'm not really a chef because I'm not chefing anybody. I'm not managing anybody in the kitchen. I love food. I think my role has evolved into storytelling and talking about food as it relates to culture and people. That's always been my interest. People, my my superpower, my love, genuinely, is that I, I love people. And food has become the way that I can connect to people and tell stories. That's what I love. So when, when you see me not cooking, I'm still connecting through food. You're segueing me perfectly because I, I want to hear about your new project. I feel like you're doing a lot of it's kind of culminated everything that you've done, uh, like throughout your career, throughout your life, throughout your careers uh, into this uh, role now. So tell me about your new show. So my new show is called Chasing Flavor. It's on Max. It's been such an amazing experience. It is about giving credit to cultures who had a hand in an iconic American dish and going back in time. And it's not the definitive path that we've taken, but we've made a decision. Do we go left or do we go right? 
so that we can tell these deep historical stories while including the people. So often we focus on a dish and we leave the people out. And what I'm going to say, and I think the, the, the example that keeps coming up for me is in this country, we love Mexican food, mm-hmm. but you cannot separate the Mexican food from the Mexicans. Mm-hmm. It goes together. And so when you're eating food, you have to honor that culture that brought it to you. And what I love also about Mexican food, when you have a taco, which is, you know, in the, uh, the Spanish language, I don't care if you're doing a Japanese taco, if you're doing a Korean taco, taco, the language is there in the word. So it ultimately goes back to that culture. Do you have any stories about any times when, especially traveling with and being with the show, in which you felt like you were surprised at something that you had learned while going down through the etymology of food in this way? Well, there were moments when, so I had a hot chicken restaurant. And I remember, and this was in Brooklyn, and I remember, because I'm from Nashville, I had a hot chicken restaurant in Brooklyn, and it was sort of a love letter to Nashville. When I was opening this restaurant, I went to Princess in Nashville and said, oh, I'm opening up a hot chicken restaurant in Brooklyn. And I got sort of like a steely, cold reception to that. I didn't get it. I I honestly thought they were just busy in the restaurant. I'm telling you, I thought they were busy. It wasn't until I was shooting the episode and I'm there with Miss Jeffries and Simone, her daughter, and they were explaining why they were so protective over Prince's Hot Chicken because their name was being erased. So it went from Prince's Hot Chicken to Nashville Hot Chicken, and now it's just Hot Chicken. Mm. And so with every iteration, and I was, I mean, even now, I still feel that moment of shame and embarrassment. Dude, wait, they just hit me. Yes. They call it Nashville's Hot Chicken. Yes, it originated in Nashville. And just think, if I were Caucasian, just how massive I would be. And, I, and I'm tearing up and I'm just looking at Simone. And I said, wait, is that the American way? Is that it, this erasure? But I was a part of it. And so now whenever I talk about hot chicken, I bring up princes because it's part of their legacy. And we have to remember to bring that back. So those are the things and the stories I get to tell and the surprises that I had that I know will be a surprise for the viewer and taking them on these journeys. This is, a, this is just a spicy question, but you can answer it. Uh, why is it important that that erasure is stopped? I mean, people have to feel that they contributed. It is important to understand that we all have had a role in building this country. We're not taking anything from anybody. So especially every single culture, everyone has added to this place. So when people talk about they want it the way that it used to be, well, the way that it used to be without all these other people ain't going to be. And so that is another thing through this with food. I mean, food is like a butterfly effect. You can't undo it. You can't, you can't pull back the layers. Things come together and explode the way that they're supposed to. But literally, everyone has been at the table. You wouldn't even have barbecue if it wasn't for all of these people, the Europeans, the indigenous, and Africans. Everybody had a role. 
So when people are like, oh, go back to where you came from. What if I take all my gifts? What you got? How does your new role, how would you say that it it scratches your creative itch? Because I feel like you've expanded so much. So the wonderful thing about this, this is my first time being an executive producer and having something to say about where we go and how the stories are told and having those creative conversations in the room with the creative team and being able to have meetings with the executives. Um, When I first saw the first cut of the show, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't like it. And then I was talking to the director and she said, well, you have to tell them. And I said, okay, I I needed to hear that one time. I needed to be given the permission and to say, wait a minute, this isn't what I had envisioned. I don't think this looks like me and my storytelling. So the creativity comes in so many different ways. Yes, in picking out where we go or have, and it's not just me, it's a team of people that original productions were amazing. And I, I have a, an executive producer, like the president of the company who is a big fan and he trusts me, he trusts my heart. And I, I want to do more storytelling. I mean, I, I made sure that we had, uh, we worked with people who were diverse, like the director, the sound people, like all of the people in the crew are diverse. And in doing so, we made sure that we were looking for the voices of different cultures. That was diverse. So we were getting the stories told in different ways and different perspectives. So the creativity is endless in this arena, in this media. And uh, I just want to do more of it. So what didn't you like about that edit? Like, what did you exactly want to change when you saw the cut of the show that you didn't like? I felt that it was a little flat. I had remembered certain experiences that I had that we filmed. And I'm like, well, where are they? Like, where, where is this part? And why did you choose that? So it didn't feel like my show. It felt like it was moving a little slow. Um, I, I wanted the pace to be faster. And it, it didn't look like something that would hold someone's attention. And I knew that we had gotten so much footage, but it just needed to be put together in a way that kept people watching the show. And that wasn't it. Did you find yourself starting to like, especially when you're an executive producer brain, you really have to start like looking at other shows and seeing what everyone else is doing so that you know your own personality. Did you find yourself doing a lot more of that? I mean, that's really interesting because... What I wanted, I hadn't seen. Mm. And what I wanted was to not be compared to Anthony Bourdain. I didn't want to be a black Bourdain. Mm-hmm. And, and that came up a lot. Um, so in a word, no. However, you get to understand the beats. You get to understand storytelling in a different way. And there was a relationship and dance between me and the director. And sometimes I had to push myself You know, I wanted to have an experience, but I also had to allow for an experience to unfold and to talk about it in the moment. Sometimes, especially during the barbecue episode when we were at the um, the plantation, I mean, it became very um, emotional. But I'm also having to show the emotion, show that side of myself while keeping the story going. When we talk about these old Virginian barbecues, there's been barbecues for Andrew Jackson or for Thomas Jefferson or George Washington, but do we know those pitmasters that were there doing it? Yeah, so much of our history is dropped that way. 
And that's the unfortunate truth of the matter. That's why we have to say their names. We have to say Juba Garth and his wife, Mandy, because these people need to be remembered, you know? So your talent and you are EP. So at some point I have to back off from EP because I'm talent. However, after the point, I'm like, tell me what I could do better so that we can get the thing that we need for the show. Carla Hall, thank you so much for joining us on Working. This has been so great. Thank you. When we come back, Ronald and I will talk about radical changes in career, being yourself, and making space for others. Ronald, I learned so much in this interview. I never wanted it to pack its knives and go. Thank you for doing it uh, and for sharing it with us. I wanted to talk first about these kinds of big career leaps that you and Carla talked about. She was an accountant and then a model and then a chef. That's huge. And I remember you mentioning in an earlier episode that you were working in IT before you made the leap into podcasting and other freelance work full time. Can you talk a little bit about your own journey? How did you get past the fear of failing and make that jump? You know, for me, I I was doing a lot of moonlighting or daylighting, whatever you want to call it. I was really branching into audio production while I was working in IT. So I kind of felt like I had a bit of a safety net. And so I had time to hone my craft, to get better and better, and to kind of get away from the idea of failing. The only time it got really scary was when in the pandemic, I lost my full-time job and decided to go full-time into audio production. Now that was pretty scary, but I was kind of over the idea of failing at that point. I was really only worried about actual physical money at that point. Uh, So I feel a little better moving out with that idea in mind rather than being afraid that things weren't going to work out. I was always optimistic that things would work out. That's amazing. That kind of having faith that things will work out. I mean, one thing you mentioned there that was true for me in switching from theater to writing as well is it's not like you went into it having no experience, right? Like that part of your life was already growing. So you knew that you'd have something to transition to. I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was really fascinated by your discussion of authenticity in this episode. You know, if you've hired Carla Hall, You've hired her to be Carla Hall. I mean, let's be honest here, right? The challenge is then finding herself within a job that requires learning a bunch of new things, like hosting a talk show, for example. Yes. I think there's an additional layer of challenge for people who aren't established uh, or aren't famous or aren't known quantities in that they may not have been hired for their authentic self. That might be totally a side issue to why someone wants to work with them. So what advice could we give people trying to find their authentic voice before they're a known quantity? Knowing your authentic voice and finding your authentic voice is a lot about being secure in who you are and being confident in who you are like as a person, not as a person who has a job or a person who's doing a thing, just generally existentially being confident in who you are as a person. And for me, the more I started to kind of like myself or kind of enjoy who I was, even when I was with my friends or family uh, and began to appreciate the ways in which they saw me, I think that was when I was able to kind of appreciate how I saw myself. And that's when I started to kind of like 
realized the things that they liked about my own voice, the things they liked about what made them laugh, what makes them smile, what brings joy to them. Um, what am I saying to them that's having any sort of impact on them? If you could think about that yourself in those ways, if you could kind of organize yourself to say, what do I like about me? What can I actually package and give to others about me when you're developing your voice? I think you'll find that naturally something will emerge. And I think it just comes from knowing yourself first. That's great. You know, Ronald, I have to say, because it came up in this conversation, I think, you know, I have a big personality. Mm -hmm. You have a big personality. Mm -hmm. Carla Hall has a big personality. Giants. So I just want to take a, take an opportunity to relish being in community with fellow extroverts. You yeah. know, it could get lonely out there. There's all those memes about introverts. Where are our memes, Ronald? Yeah, Where are our them. memes? They don't care about us. <laughs> Extrovert problems, yeah, yeah. man. At the same time, all three of us, another thing all, we all have in common is actually that we're interviewers, right? Mm -hmm. So we have had to learn how to make space for other people. How have you learned how to do that? Because, you know, I'll tell you, that was sort of the journey of my adult life because I had three siblings, you know, we're, we're Jews. We're just used to interrupting each other all the time commando conversation it's like a war zone so, so how did you learn to make space for other people and particularly you know as you talk to them and interview them and you know create that environment um i'm painfully self-aware so i think when i'm in a conversation with a person i'm watching them and i'm watching how they're receiving what i'm saying and i i'm also a person that when i feel like i've been talking too long i start to self-censor i start to you know edit myself and slow it down so kind of naturally when i'm in a conversation with a person if i feel like i've been talking too much i try to take a second to really listen to what the person is saying, really stop thinking about what I'm saying and focus in on their words. It's an active process, but I think if all of us can kind of do that when we're talking to another person, you'll find that you'll end up being more generous in a conversation and it won't necessarily be you dominating it. I'm very like just self-conscious about being a person that's dominating a conversation when I really want everyone to be engaged and having a good time. So I think like thinking through the role of being a facilitator, listening when someone's been interrupted, going back to their point, letting them finish. Uh, I think just finding a way to be generous in that conversation is the best way to make space for other people who might not be able to make that space for themselves. I think that's great. I mean, one thing you bring up there that I think is true in interviewing and in life and in collaboration and everything is that, you know, a conversation is a really active process mm -hmm. and it involves actively listening even while you're the one talking, right? Yes. You yes. know, whether that's listen and listening, might not be their words. It might be their body language, their yeah. cues and just yeah. stopping and be like, Hey, are you okay? You're like, Oh, I'm sorry. I've been talking a lot or, you know, whatever it is. I think that sort of thing goes a long way. Yeah. 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 I think that, like I said, that self-awareness, you know what yeah. I mean? I think, and I think it could be a superpower and like your kryptonite. Uh, <laughs> but I think for me, I've always tried to harness it and be like, all right, Ronald, shut up. You've been doing a lot of talking. Why don't you just listen, give them a chance to speak. So I think you can use that self-awareness as a superpower if you allow it to be. Right. I mean, it's interesting as well. I, I think of it almost like, you know, like when there's a fire, right? You might blow on the embers to get some oxygen in there to, yeah. to like get the fire going. And I think extroverts were often relied on a lot to do that. But, you know, if it's a candle and you do that same thing, it goes out, right? Exactly. So it's like, yes, you don't exactly. always need to be blowing so hard. Yes. Yes, exactly. Totally. 
Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode. Uh, If you've enjoyed our show, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And yes, I am going to give you the Slate Plus pitch one more time. Slate Plus members get full access behind the paywall. They get bonus segments on shows like this one. They get bonus full episodes of shows like Decodering and all sorts of other goodies. Just go to slate.com slash working plus to sign up and support what we do right here on Working Today. Special thanks to our guest, Carla Hall, and to our producer, Cameron Drews, who always makes sure we sound delicious. Join us next week for June's conversation with author and crossword creator, Anna Schechtman. Until then, get back to work.